Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. Those of you who subscribe to The Groves Connection know that I believe there are four basic functions that are, for the most part, under our control and that together determine the length and quality of our lives. The fundamental four include food, exercise, sleep, and stress management. My guest today has advanced degrees in two of those topics. With a PhD in nutritional science and a master's in exercise science, Dr. Wood is well positioned to take our system from one that reacts to sickness and injury to one that promotes fundamental strategies to achieve optimal health. Currently, Dr. Wood serves as executive advisor to clinical product development at the giant CVS Health. He caught my attention there as a true expert in the nutrition of metabolic disease. And after several conversations, I quickly recognized that Rich is someone with the skills and experience necessary to harness a decade of academics and teaching and translate that into knowledge that can be applied to the average person. Rich is no longer just about theories and proofs, but about actual real world results. Much of Rich's training and experience has been focused on understanding the causes and treatment of metabolic disease as well as the impact of diet on blood lipids. Metabolic dysfunction, including lipid abnormalities, are associated with multiple chronic illnesses. Examples include type 2 diabetes, uh, risk factors for cardiovascular disease, uh, cerebrovascular disease or stroke, hypertension, kidney disease, obesity, and the list goes on. Having even a modest impact can mean millions of lives and billions of dollars saved. You can see why this topic is of special interest. On top of all of that, obviously this is an incredibly important topic, but it was a lot of fun to sit down with Dr. Wood. He is a natural teacher and our conversation ranged over a variety of topics and I think you will really enjoy it. So, please join me as I sit down with Dr. Rich Wood. Are you ready to connect? Well, 
Welcome to the Groves Connection. We are uh, very fortunate today to have Dr. Rich Woods with us, who is going to uh, enlighten us about CVS's nutrition program and where we go from there, who knows. But uh, welcome, Rich. It's nice to have you on the show. Uh, Robert, it's a thrill. I'm really, really happy to be here. Real excited about the conversation. Excellent. I want to start with, tell me a little bit about your background. And I want to start way back, elementary school. Were you always kind of a science kid? What was your life like? Where'd you grow up? Oh boy. Yeah. And you know what? You'll, you'll enjoy this quote. I was not always a science kid. I was definitely not always an academic kid. I remember my father pulling me in one day saying, you straighten your act out or you're, you're going to be in big trouble. Just and how old were you then? 12, 13, gotcha. just not okay. applying myself to school. I wasn't yeah. super interested. I loved sports. I loved being outdoors. I was into Boy Scouts, camping, hiking, that sort of thing. Wasn't real focused on school, um, but again, sports, a lot of hockey, baseball, anything I could play. Nice. You know, the academic thing actually didn't come into play for me until I was in high school. Junior year, I took anatomy and physiology. Most kids don't take that till they're seniors. I really, really wanted to take it. No idea where I was going career-wise. And I I, went Let me me ask a quick question. Was it your interest in sports and physicality, movement of the body that directed you there initially? Yeah, exactly. Couple injuries, you know, a couple, you know, and and you kind of get interested. Hey, how does this work? Yeah. And... All of a sudden, and probably dissecting frogs in biology class helped a little bit too. Right. So, <laughs> so, so you know, we, we get into anatomy and physiology class and I become this nerd and I'm just like, I love this. I end up acing the class. I have an incredible teacher, by the way, yeah. who allows me to be me. And all of a sudden I realized it wasn't school that I didn't like. It was kind of like the indoctrination type of feeling that I was getting. And when I was able to do things a little bit more on my own terms, I just loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. I would go make my own tests before anatomy and physiology. I made the test myself. And <laughs> that's how I studied. And then my friends would say, hey, can I take that? Can yeah. I go? And I was like, sure, you like this? Like, wow. And it was almost a way to apply the passion I had in sports or at the outdoors to academics. And all of a sudden, that's when I really became hooked. So, so, so let me ask you a quick question about that, because one of the things that I'm finding over and over again is the role of mentors in folks that are successful. So tell me a little bit more about this teacher. What was it specifically that that captured you about the way that they taught? Yeah, and, and I've got a couple, and I would love to kind of get into what their mentoring relationship meant to me. And by yeah. the way, as I moved on in my career, I have developed mentoring programs because of these very experiences. So yes. you know, thanks for yeah. mentioning that. So in high school, you know, again, I was a goofball. Definitely like to joke around a lot. And this guy was tolerant of it okay. to, to a certain point. <laughs> Instead of saying, like, knock it off, he'd be like, okay, I get it. That was funny. Like, hey, how about we focus on <laughs> renal function, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and so I, I appreciated that. There was not this immediate push-off standoffishness. It was like, look, I get who you are. That's fine. Let's focus on this. And, and for some reason, that resonated. So, so flexibility, really, to be able to accept you as you and uh, redirect instead of setting rigid limits on what behaviors are acceptable. Does that make sense? It's, it's perfectly stated, yes. Yeah, the yeah, redirection yeah. was huge for me. Yeah, yeah um, cool. So I, I just kind of learned I didn't fit the mold, but that was okay. I think for a while it was in my head that that's a real problem. Yeah. Find a way to fit the mold. And when I realized I didn't have to, I really started to excel. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. That is a that is a revelation that one can be oneself and still be liked, isn't it? 
<laughs> and still be successful, as a matter of fact. So uh, now we're in high school, you've turned into a nerd, but you didn't lose the physicality, I'm guessing. Uh, did you still have an interest in sports at that time? Were you able to do it all? What happened? I loved sports. I still love sports. I was always into hockey. It was kind of at that point where I was realizing, you know, I'm not going to the NHL. It's not yeah. in the cards for me. That's It was a dream, right? Yeah, but yeah. I was totally at peace with it. It wasn't like, okay, I'm done. That was all it was for me. It was this new thing. I was so excited about physiology and where I could go with that. Yeah. But I yeah. still loved the sport part. So now you can imagine the opportunities to merge that love of sports. Right, right. Uh, I, I remember the first time I got to lift weights, I became just a yeah. total gym nut and, and still to this day. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but, but that's a connection, right? The physiology is there. So understanding, you know, principles of imposed demand on muscle and, and we can go more into that later and how it connects to insulin resistance. Yeah, There's so much yeah. to dig into. Yeah. Um, so that's what thrilled me and the physicality it continued. So I, I went to Springfield college. I did my bachelor's and master's degree. Now, now where's Springfield college? It's in Western Massachusetts. Yeah. I um, went to a small school too. So I know I always, have to explain where it is, but go ahead. Yeah. Good thinking. Yeah. Best known probably is the birthplace of basketball. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Pretty neat. So Dr. James Naismith was there. And There's your trivia ones. question of the day. Listeners. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So yeah, I went to school there and had an incredible experience. Uh, for somebody who nerds out about physiology and also loves the application, so not necessarily benchtop science, right, but right. applying this on the field, I mean, it's the best place you could be. Probably still is. Okay. All right. Speaking of mentoring, I, so I was in the athletic training program. Yes. I took a very roundabout way. Not a lot of people I know, uh, you know, kind of took the path. But so I learned about taking care of sports injuries. I was working with athletes. I did my internship in pro hockey, which ended up turning into a job for a few years after that right but well, the meant i can't the, wait to hear about that but oh ahead, yeah. yeah some of that we'll probably have to leave out but but the, <laughs> the, the, the fun some of the fun parts will leave out but um but i'll tell you it was such an incredible experience the mentoring side my mentor charlie redmond he was an amazing guy so i'll tell you a story about charlie and okay, i share okay. this all the time we had a gymnast have a really severe uh fracture of his forearm and so i was a student yeah. and all the students were assigned to teams so and charlie was supervising and he kind of came in and he said okay they didn't put a hard cast on his arm why okay. didn't they do that i said well i'm not sure and i'm said, assuming this is a non-displaced fracture yes and okay. so he says he says to me do you know what volkman's ischemic contracture is and i said no and he said okay you should probably like find that out okay and, um, so next day he comes in and just comes right over. He says, so what's Volkman's ischemic contracture? And like I said, I was kind of a nerd. And I said, right. oh, well, I realized that once the bones are kind of where they belong and they've been healing for a couple of days, there can be a lot of swelling. So a hard cast could then impinge nerves and blood flow. Therefore, they're put more of a splint and then they can go to this hard cast later. And I don't know, this was 25 years ago. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So he was like, okay, good. And then that was it. He never told me the answers. And there were a lot of times where that was incredibly frustrating. Right. I'll be right. honest. It's not now because I learned how to find answers because he insisted that I found answers. What he did is he was the setup guy. He teed me up. Yeah, so I yeah. knew what I was shooting at, but I had to figure out how to get there. Yeah, There's a lot of value in that. And Charlie's just the best. You know, Rich, one of the things that comes to mind is, and you've been in this position now as, as a teacher of one kind or another, is the patience required to allow that process to happen from the teacher side. Yeah, I mean, you have to really be patient 
and let people learn or, you know, all you're doing is handing them the answers. You know, that required an awful lot of patience to, to allow you to do that. And with some students, more patience is required than others. There's no doubt. But uh, thank you for that. That's another uh, great insight on, on good teachers and mentors. And I've had a lot. And that was a great spot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it, learning that, that was also a chance to learn clinical. So learning clinical terminology and, you know, being in right. a clinical profession. That was my first real exposure to clinical work. And I loved that, and this will come into play later, but I loved the process. Uh-huh. I loved looking at the greater good and figuring out how small processes contribute to the greater good. Yeah. How do they save time? How do they save money? How do they ensure safety? What I'm hearing is a real sense of curiosity about how things work and what you can change to make them work better. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So, so we're at uh, Springfield College in Western Massachusetts. What's the next move? Where do you go from there? So at this point, I loved taking care of injured athletes. It was fun. Mm-hmm. The, the adventure. I mean, you know, when somebody does go down, it's a real like it's it, there's an adrenaline rush piece to it. You get out there. You've got to take really good care of them quickly. Make quick decisions. I loved that. Yeah. Also, there's a lot of complaining. Oh, this hurts. Oh, I don't know why. And, you know, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's ups and downs. Right. And and so I loved that. But I also was really into the sport performance. So I stayed at Springfield. I did my master's degree in strength and conditioning. OK. Learned how to get athletes uh, to their peak performance. How do you get people powerful and strong athleticism, agility, et cetera. Right, right, right. And I found and this is another theme for me. I found a niche for myself, which was in the weight room. If somebody came in and let's say they they were coming back from a knee injury, but they right. didn't want to lose their upper body strength. Some of the other strength coaches didn't have the background that I did. So they were scared to work with somebody like that. Yeah, yeah. So I was able to help bridge that gap. What can we do with this person to keep them fit yeah. while they're still rehabilitating? And, and I love that. That was kind of the, the void I filled in the weight room. Excellent. That's a great, uh, a great way to think about it. Now, the other question that I want to ask you is... Did you start to think about nutrition in this process? Was that part of the deal at this point? Or is that something that came later? It was later in the game. Uh, When I finished my master's degree, I became a strength and conditioning coach in the American Hockey League. I was one of the first in the American Hockey League. Uh, At that time, they weren't there. Is that right? There weren't any? In the NHL, there certainly were strength and conditioning coaches. But we're talking about the early, late late 90s, early 2000s. There was not necessarily a strength coach. Normally, it was the athletic trainer who did the strength workouts or somebody who would come in two days, three days a week. It was kind of a jack of all trades rather than an expert who could focus on the area. And and if there is any sport where loyalty and trust means something, I mean, it's hockey. And you didn't want some strength coach who was a personal trainer at a gym coming in two days a week. The guys didn't trust, wouldn't trust yeah, somebody yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Okay, I so I had already been with the team as an intern. So they hired me. I was their strength coach. Amazing time. Fun, fun, fun job. Amazing yeah. people, the hardest workers. But you kind of like, I got to this point where I'm saying, I'm trying to get somebody to jump a half an inch higher. I'm trying to get this incredible specimen athlete to be a little bit better. And that's a real challenge. But then when I step back, for me at least, in thinking about my impact on the world, it didn't feel that big. It didn't feel like getting somebody to skate a little bit faster was impactful. But then I said, 
my exercise background, I can help people live healthier lives and reduce comorbidities and reduce risk and slow progression. Got it. And at that point, I said to myself, I just don't know enough about nutrition. I need to, I need to get sharper there. And then I've got a great package. So, so, so when was this that you made that? It was in the, like 2002, three-ish. I started having these thoughts of, I'm going to have a lot more impact if I know more about nutrition. And I thought I already kind of knew a lot about it. Right. I just mm-hmm. had a few things I needed to kind of brush up on and I'd yeah. be good. And <laughs> uh, and here we are today, and I've realized that's totally not true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I did my PhD at University of Connecticut, uh, nutrition, uh, studied with Dr. Maria Luz Fernandez, amazing mentor. Again, you see the theme here. I've been incredibly fortunate. And I loved lipid metabolism. I just, it was another thing I could nerd out about. Interesting. So you, that in particular captured your attention. Is there is there a, a family reason for that? Is there a history of heart disease or some other reason that that uh, captured your attention? I'll give you an objective reason and a very subjective reason. Okay. Family history, long and wide family history of high cholesterol. So it's always gotcha. been on my mind. Yeah. That's the objective reason. The subjective reason, it's really cool. Actually, <laughs> we're, we're in Rhode Island. It's wicked cool. Yeah. And that's yeah. it. It's it, it's something that I, I couldn't read enough about it. Yeah. And yeah. that's when, you, to me at least, I know I've found something. When I can't put it down. And, and it's different from the information, and I'll use this uh, intentionally, we're fed. You know, when I was uh, going through uh, medical school, I mean, we were taught the food pyramid and, and low fat and stay away from all saturated fats and focus on only good fats and a minimal part of your diet. And, and those things uh, have led us down the path that we find our society on now with food additives. And, and there are a whole lot of other things that you know a lot more about than I do that have led us down this path. But uh, it turns out that the data on fats is kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Boy, I I think we only have an hour plus, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, big time. So I think that there are a lot of different reasons for that, but there's no question we have to really kind of shake up what we think we know. Yeah. And one of it, you know, one of the origins of this is just the quality of data and the quality of research. And what tends to happen is people want answers immediately and we can't get them. It's very difficult to do good research. Yeah. So quick data kind of propagate very quickly and then you find out maybe they weren't what we thought. Yeah. So yeah. diet heart hypothesis is a great example of that. Okay. And I mean, I think it's what, 60, 70 years and we're still trying to work on proving that one and there's plenty that shows that it's probably should be a rejected hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, it's interesting that it takes so long to change old habits and there's still this notion that there's only uh, one dietary strategy that should be used. The other interesting part of this is, and we're going to talk a little bit about this too, is is the epidemic of obesity, pre-diabetes, diabetes, and this not only in this country, but as we've been great at exporting our dietary habits around the world now, we have a, a challenge with those disorders. And they are disorders of carbohydrate processing, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call it that. When that shift for you occurred, when you started uh, doing, was this in graduate school when you made that shift or was it in when you were still, uh, you know, when you were first discovering this back in early 2003 or how did that shift occur? And what was your notion of the literature on Nutrition. When I went to the University of Connecticut as a nutrition doctoral student, the day I walked in, I would have said the food pyramids pretty much got it right. Low fat, low cholesterol, salt is terrible for your health. Like I would have, that's how I would have approached it. Probably a couple of months in, 
a young faculty member came by and was just a really friendly guy. And yeah. he and I and a few people started talking. And this faculty member was Dr. Jeff Volick. And he left. I didn't know Jeff at all. Yeah. And and he he kind of walked away. And, and my fellow peer was like, oh, do you know, do you know Dr. Volick's work? And I said, no, I, I really don't. And so she started to explain to me what he did. And I remember being like, well, that's crazy. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, you can't. I mean, you feed somebody that much fat, right? And this is my preconceived, totally wrong thoughts, yeah. which are if you feed somebody that much fat, we know what's going to happen. Like it's going to increase cardiovascular risk. They're probably going to become diabetic. Like, that's crazy. And so she says, well, you ought to look at his data. They're, they're very compelling. Okay, sure. I looked at his data and I was kind of curious. Yeah. So I got to know him. Dr. Fernandez, had kind of connected the two of us. I spent some time in his office and I got curious. And a project came up. Hey, Rich, can you take this grant? Can you, can you run this project? Sure. It involves low-carbohydrate nutrition. These folks are coming in. I'm putting them on a low-carbohydrate diet. And they are coming in. They're losing weight quickly. They're telling me they don't feel hungry. They have a different sparkle to them. Yeah, yeah. They feel great. And so I'm thinking, well, yeah, wait till we see their lipids. Triglycerides going down 30 40%. HDL is going up. And at that time I said, well, wait, when you lose weight, HDL goes down. How's it going up? So all these things start to happen. And I'm saying, wait a second, everything I'm seeing is the opposite of what I thought was true. And it was a real kind of like this very shocking moment. And it's a scary moment because you say to yourself, well, what else do I think is true that isn't? And you got to be careful with that thought because you you do. So I I tried to focus the energy on nutrition. And to be honest with you, I kind of liked that there was a little bit of a controversy involved. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of this underdog here. So I would go and present around the country. In the later, like 2006 to 10, when I'd present, people would get visibly angry with me saying this low carbohydrate thing, you're propagating bad news, you don't have the data, it's gonna give everybody osteoporosis because it's acidic. I mean, these so these arguments that you've probably heard before. Yes, yes. And it's not just me, by the way. I mean, Jeff has been through this 150 times, uh-huh. thousand times more yeah, than I have, yeah. but we all experience this kind of nutritional heresy. Yes, 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 yes. But the thing is, I'm pretty confident because the data are on our side. Yeah. And yeah. we're trying to oppose a view that is very, very strongly held. So I should expect that. Well, I, you know, I got to tell you, before about 2005, I think, 2006, seven, somewhere along in there, the only thing I knew about ketosis was diabetic ketoacidosis. And to me, that was bad news, right? And it is bad news. That kind of ketosis is a starvation type of ketosis that goes beyond the kinds of lipid metabolism that you're talking about now. It's, it's basically particularly type 1 diabetics. We're talking primarily about type 2 here. But when type 1 diabetics, meaning they're born with the disorder, when they basically aren't able to keep up with the, the glucose load, they can go into a life-threatening process called diabetic ketosis acidosis and their blood becomes very acid and that has a lot of major consequences for multiple bodily functions and it is a medical emergency. So you can imagine in my mind when somebody says, oh, I'm on a ketogenic diet, 
the first thing that pops into my head is, oh, no, you know, this is going to be a disaster. Uh, the other piece of it is we have had it hammered into us for so long. I mean, the medical profession, the nutrition profession, that high fat is bad, particularly saturated fat is bad. So it's no wonder that the response you got was that. Now, one of the things that I strongly advocate, as you mentioned earlier, is we must be able, all of us, to strongly question everything. As you said, you got to be careful with that because it can go to extremes. And we're not talking about that. I, I think it was, uh, oh gosh, I'm forgotten who, I've forgotten who said it, but uh, all things in moderation, including moderation. <laughs> you know, we need to be careful with that thought, but it is absolutely true. If you hold a position and you can't think of anything that would dissuade you, then that's called motivated reasoning. You're not really assessing the facts. You have a reason that you take that position that doesn't have anything to do with the data and you can't be moved off of it. That is dysfunctional. I'm not saying I never do that. I'm sure I do. And, and confirmation bias is a thing. You know, we look for the data that supports the position we want to hold and we ignore the data and find fault with the data that doesn't support that. So that's human beings, that's human nature. But when the data accumulates over time, at some point you have to say, wow, maybe I was wrong. And, and that's where you were at this point. I really was. And, and I continue to be there. And I believe in low carbohydrate nutrition, well-formulated ketogenic diet, an incredible tool. I'm not sitting here saying it's a panacea. It is clearly not, but it is a really powerful, very clinically backed tool at this point. Yeah. And yeah. I was seeing that shift happening. And if you fast forward now, uh, it's really different this. Yeah. To audience members saying, thanks for staying at it because there's something good happening now. Yeah. Watching that shift has just been a really special part of my career. You know, I was thinking about what you said earlier, uh, uh, something along the lines of you were, uh, gosh, you were excited by the controversy or you were up for the fight. And I want to tell you, it is always rewarding to take controversial positions when you're right. <laughs> it's yeah. not so rewarding when you're wrong. And, and there's some risk there. You know, data changes over time and, and we all ought to be open to, to new data. But, I, but the other thing that I notice is that it tends to be physicians that are in some way engaged with athletics that are more likely to um, acknowledge the benefit. Now, that's changed recently. I mean, the ADA, the American Diabetic Association, has come out and said, yep, you know, low-carbohydrate diets work for diabetics. It's one of the diets we know works for diabetics. So although they haven't taken a position that everybody ought to be on one, they have said that, yes, that's a legitimate way to treat diabetes. Uh, but is, is your notion that in the earlier days that it was mostly those that were involved in athletics, and why is that? Yeah, it, it, to be honest, that hasn't crossed my mind, but it's interesting you say that. In the world of athletics, there is not, number one, there's not necessarily appetite or two, the time to come up with this randomized controlled trials of how to improve performance. Uh -huh. it's, it's like, hey, I think we can do this and I think we might get some results. Let's try it right now. So there were people in that field trying this a long time ago. So remembering back to my first experience, when I saw people walk into the lab and say, hey, I, you know, I got a problem. I got to buy a new pair of pants. Like, thanks a lot. <laughs> ha ha ha, laughing. Yeah. So, but I saw this with my own two eyes. And I think a lot of the people in the sport performance world were seeing this back then. Yeah. So that's maybe one of the reasons why yeah. that 
population maybe is a little bit on the earlier adopter side. You know, you, you've moved into a point that I think would uh, maybe be an interesting one to explore, and that is the difference between a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial and, you know, personal experience or moving quickly. I mean, how do you, you know, you're in, you're in a different world now. Uh, you're in the world of a publicly traded company organizing their overall nutrition strategy for CVS at uh, health hubs and minute clinics around the country, starting with smaller pilots, obviously, but branching out from there. So how do you blend those and how do you do that without losing yourself, you know, without going too far down the road of this is the position I must take? It's like what we were talking about earlier, motivated reasoning. How do you avoid that and how are they different? So what's on my mind about this is this tremendous opportunity in front of us. And here's how I would put it. If you go down the street and talk to 10 people, just tap the next 10 you see and say, hey, do you think nutrition can have an impact on your health? Do you think we could make people better and our healthcare costs would go down if nutrition were better? I, I'm willing to bet, you know, eight or nine at least of them would say, well, of course. And then you say to them, well, how's that going right now? And they're going to say, well, terrible. Yeah, yeah. And so you have this thing that people pretty much believe will work, but are also going to tell you, but it can't work and it probably won't. That's to me, that's what I focus on now is we know nutrition can work. And as a nutrition scientist, I know and have seen with my own two eyes how powerful nutrition is. The deal is we've got to make that applicable so it can impact people in their lives as it stands. Right, right. That's the motivation to combine the two. So the clinical data are there, but then when you leave the world of a randomized controlled trial, What's the external validity there? Right. Generally not good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. can we do? But, but the great news to me is the digital advancements that are being made right now, so fast, that's probably what was missing. So if you came in to see me 15, 20 years ago, I might say, okay, here's a PDF. Here's a picture of a plate. Go follow this. Let's see how you do in, in, in a month. I'll see you in six <laughs> weeks. Yeah. Great. And you're excited and you leave and you say, well, wait a minute. What about that? sugar-free gum. Can I have that? And, oh no, I've got cocktail hour tomorrow night. And things fall apart quickly. Yes. The digital experience we can give people now is, I think, the missing link between the eight to 10 people who say nutrition can work and then saying, but it won't. That's the gap we're going to fill. Gotcha. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because we talk about this with physicians, right? We say, you've got to have in the moment, point of care, real-time data. Well, th- we're talking about patients here uh, or, or, or whoever it is. They may not be a patient. They may just be focused on their own health. But that individual now has exactly that real time in the moment information on what do I do now? Exactly. And it is not that PDF I gave you that I gave to the 50 people before you. It's yeah, personalized. Yeah. The data allow us to do that. And at CVS, we're positioned, I would argue, better than anybody in the country, if not the world, to do this right. Yeah. yeah. So it's very, very exciting. So now that in the moment and personalized nutrition you're getting is what you need right then. Yeah. Yeah. So so let me ask you a question. One of the criticisms that I have heard and still hear today about, in particular, ketogenic diets, very low carbohydrates. We're talking, what, 30 grams a day in most people, something like that. At that level, the word is, well, we, we don't have long-term data. We don't know what the long-term outcome is. What, where do we stand on that? How long 
term uh, have we uh, collected data and what does it look like? So there are very strong data up until at least two years and certainly some that are going beyond that and we'll see more of those in the coming years. Um, that not only are people able to sustain their better health, but a lot of these things everybody was worried about aren't really happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we do have good data. And I would also kind of flip that around and say, well, we have a lot of data on what the Western diet's (laughs) I was going to go there, but that's exactly right. It's balancing against what? And and we almost couldn't do worse than the standard American diet, right? So almost anything would be better. And so I absolutely agree with you. It, the question is, well, we know what the results is of the last uh, set of advice that we got. Uh, why not try something that at least a couple of years out, we got some pretty darn solid data on not only weight loss, managing prediabetes and diabetes in in a big way. But also now, you know, I think uh, in terms of overall well-being, reduction in cardiac risk factors, improvement in sleep, reduction in fatty liver disease that is uh, non-alcoholic. So there are a whole host of things that seem to get better if one believes in in surrogate markers, and one should to an extent, Uh, because that's what we base so much of our nutrition advice on, then the data look pretty darn good going pretty far down the road at present. The surrogate markers is big, and and I agree with you. You've got to believe where that's going. I think what everybody wants to see is this tissue-level specific data. And I talk to what, what, what do you mean by tissue level? Are we making people healthier just based on these surrogates or are we helping to actually improve their gotcha. cell function? Okay. So here's the example I would give when I was teaching college classes, I would say hemoglobin A1C right. is a candy coated red blood cell. Okay, yes. It's a sticky. So glycolysis, or excuse me, glycation. I'm going to go with this. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> glycation is this non-enzymatic binding of a sugar to a protein or a lipid. And right. So it happens throughout the body. And, and so it, what you're saying is the sugar is binding to the red blood cell. Is that yes, what? Yeah. The, mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. The, the protein in the red blood cell. The hemoglobin. Gotcha. Okay. And so then I would say, well, who cares, right? Who cares if I have candy-coated red blood cells? Like, who cares, right? Well, I care but because it's a surrogate. And here's why it's a surrogate. Because hemoglobin, the protein that's getting glycated, is showing us what's probably happening, and this is where I'm going with the tissue level, what's probably happening to other proteins. So proteins in my arteries, proteins in my eyes, proteins in my nephrons, uh, the, the neurons, et cetera, et cetera. So now you think about diabetic complications. What I really care about is, are my nerves getting healthier? Are my eyes getting healthier? Right. So the data are all pointing in that direction. I think when things are at the tissue level, it's going to be pretty darn hard to argue anymore. Yeah, yeah. So so, so let me take it in, in, in a slightly different direction now and ask you about the notion of individual variability in ability to manage carbohydrates. And do you look at that when you're giving people advice on a diet? Is that something that's part of the equation? Is it one size fits all? I mean, one of the principles that I espouse is that uh, the answer is often between two extremes. Now, if you think about 30 grams a day as an extreme, and gosh, I don't know what the average American diet is in grams per day of carbohydrates, do you? Probably three, 350, 350. So 10 times that amount. Is the answer somewhere in the middle or is that in this case uh, uh, the exception that proves the rule 
Okay. So do you personalize? Yes. The big, the very difficult part about doing that is how do you pinpoint what that number is? So let me talk about carbohydrate tolerance for a minute. I think we all have a carbohydrate tolerance. That's the level of carbs that we can tolerate and maintain our metabolic health. Okay. Where does that sit? Well, it would be a mistake to look at that as this cemented target that we have because it moves over time in the same person and it Uh. even moves within days. Uh. So if somebody is doing lots of strength training, lots of aerobic exercise in one day and completely sedentary in a day, that number probably changes. Gotcha. So using the number you gave, if, if mine were 50, if I did a ton of exercise, it might be 70. Right. If I do nothing, it might be 40 or 30. But but to pinpoint that objectively with a test is not something we can do right now. I'm sure, you know, there, there's probably, you know, a future in that, the yeah, world yeah. of data. So I have a 14-year-old son. If he decides to eat pasta and chips and this and that, like his metabolism is great. He's a elite hockey player, so he's super, super, super fit and I'm active. I'm not surprised that he's an elite <laughs> hockey player, I have to say, but yeah. go on. Despite his dad, he's an elite hockey player. Both, <laughs> both of my boys are. And, and, and the thing is... He can tolerate that now. So if I said, okay, you know, my sons can eat 350, 400 grams per day, yeah. and I tag that to them, that's a mistake when they're 40. Because I can tell you that I know I can't tolerate the same number of carbs I used to. And we see this in professional athletes, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah, when they stop working out aggressively and and doing the incredible expenditure uh, of energy, the, the the high metabolism that's associated with high-level sports, if they stop immediately and they don't change their diet, guess what happens? You got it. And, and as an athletic trainer, I saw that. So yeah. now somebody, you know, unfortunately tears their ACL and it's at that time was a six-month return. You're going from expending tremendous amounts of energy to very, very little very quickly. And most folks didn't have a way to change that nutrition intake. Okay, so, so that's an important point that it can vary over time, even, you know, day to day by individual. As we get older, obviously it, it varies too. Our, our tolerance tends to go down, not only based on activity level, but other factors, I'm guessing. But isn't there, um, you know, if you're, if you're doing continuous glucose monitoring or you're checking glucose frequently, aren't there differences in the average, uh, you know, if somebody has an average level of activity and uh, over time you can figure out what that that is what their daily life is like for this year. You know, let's not go 10 years down the road, but for this year. Is there a lot of variability between how much uh, carbohydrates you would prescribe among uh, differences in individuals? How does that work? Uh, if there is a lot of variability. And you mentioned a continuous glucose monitor. If somebody uses a CGM, it can be one of the most eye-opening experiences yeah. uh, to see those data in, in almost a real-time fashion. So, yeah, there is variability, and there are other factors. So you and I have talked before about things like sleep and stress, and, right. and all of a sudden when you find out somebody had a horrible night's sleep and their stress levels are through the roof, I yeah. bet you that can explain some of the variability. But, okay. But this just kind of underscores the importance of having good data, good analytics behind a digital product that can then connect people when they need it to nutrition. So, so for somebody who aspires to be like Rich, describe that pathway to us. How did you, did you stumble into that? Was it mentors that helped you? Uh, were you out, you know, looking for this uh, kind of work? And how did that evolve? I mostly followed my curiosity. And I was great, open to great, opportunities. Great answer. Okay, go ahead. It was really, that's what it comes down to. And there have been a lot of times in my career where I've kind of had to 
essentially invent what I wanted to do and then work with folks to say, this is what you should have me do. So I've found myself doing that. So how, how did I get to this is through curiosity and taking advantage of opportunities. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and being okay, getting rejected a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Um, like a real lot. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, it's pretty hard, especially when, you kind of believe in something, but yeah. But yeah. So th- those are probably the, the things I'd emphasize. I want to highlight that point though. I don't know anyone who is successful that hasn't failed multiple times at, you know, at something. And in fact, the difference between people in managing failures may be the differentiator for those who are successful versus those who struggle to find that success. A hundred percent. And looking at failure as an opportunity. And, and to be honest, I think, so I, we didn't really talk about it, but I spent 10 years as a college professor and gotcha. then kind of wow. abruptly moved into more of, I, I left academia. I bet it. you were a great professor though. I can Thank already you. tell by the way you've characterized things and the way you teach, if you will. Thank you. I love to teach. It's yeah. still, it is absolutely an avocation for me. I, I still love it. I think someday I probably will end up teaching again. Yep. Going from that to Silicon Valley startup right. is just a huge change. And what I realized, you have to embrace failure and it's really hard. But if you look at failure and rejection as a learning experience, it, right. it takes the pressure off. It's not, I failed. It's this idea wasn't right yet. And I'm going to try to make it better next time. And it's hard because you have to take the personal side out of it. I'm not a failure. The idea didn't work. It's, it's kind of more of how I've talked to myself about it. And it, yeah, seems, to, yeah. it seems to help. So you're in Silicon Valley now. You're, you're doing something that's been very different from academics. Are there, are there other key learnings from that experience that you could pass on? It, I mean, I had a tremendous experience. And really kind of the concept of decentralized command is very mm. important to me. Yeah, yeah. The whole idea of this top down kind of is a is a bad idea because yeah, the people yeah. closest to the problem should solve problems. Yes. The the other piece is relationships. Yeah. Back yeah. when I was in college, we spent an incredible amount of time with our peers developing relationships. Right. Uh-huh. And I thought it was just a way to fill time. Uh, and I was wrong. It was not. It yeah. was a way to form lasting bonds, lasting commitments. Yeah. yeah. So so if you and I build this great relationship and you come up with this kind of controversial idea, I'm not going to be like, this guy's crazy. I'm going to say, I really respect this guy and I see where he's coming from. I don't agree with him or anything, but tell me more. Instead of really holding your beliefs and fighting everybody around you to make sure you end up on top, (laughs) you're looking at the people around you and saying, you know, I would love if you were my boss. It's a whole different way to look at the world. Yeah, it really is. You've touched on... uh I think all, all four of the issues that I like to think about as, as the fundamental four or the four things that we as individuals can do to maximize our chances of living better and healthier and longer. And, and uh, I'll just lay them out there for you and, and uh, take your feedback on them. And I don't know which one comes first because they all interact in complex ways. And we'll talk about that. Actually, it may be sleep <laughs> because when we are not well rested, we tend to be more impulsive. We're more likely to make decisions that don't serve us. We're much less likely to be using the parts of our brain that require a lot of energy, far more likely to, to, to use Jonathan Haidt's terms, the elephant, takeover rather than the rider. So sleep 
is really important, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that maybe. And, uh, and the second uh, we've talked a lot about already is activity. You know, how do you move your body? How much exercise do you get? How does that impact uh, the metabolic activity in the muscles and therefore impact the diet? And, and then the third is the diet. What do you put in your body? How do you use it? What, what's the impact of that? And then the fourth is, is stress management. And there are lots of ways we can go with that. Everybody's heard about meditation now. Uh, but there are other aspects to that that I think are important to explore as well. And, and you've touched on some of those as well. Relationships is one of them, that that connection to other people, the ability to, to have meaning beyond our own small little worlds. Those four fundamental things, uh, sleep, uh, exercise, nutrition, and stress management, I think are the fundamental things that determine what our lives are going to be like and how long they'll last. First of all, I love it. Uh, and I think it makes so much sense. If you optimize those four, you're, and maybe some others as well, but those four in particular, if you optimize those, you reduce your risk or you allow yourself to have about the amount of freedom you can have. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I like the way of thinking of it uh, as enabling freedom. I think that's an important point. It really does because to the extent that we are unhealthy of, you know, in either mind or body, what we've done is we've set boundaries on what's possible. We are building our own jail, if you will, when we ignore those possibilities. I think that, again, people need the help to figure out how is it that I can do this? Because I would also argue that most people, like I said, if you walk down the street, they would agree with you on that. It's like, yeah. how do I do it though? And, and even people in the profession, you can look at across the actual professions and we'll see people still struggle with it. Yeah, yeah. If that's not enough of a motivating factor for change, I don't know what is. I want to talk about this a little more, but, but the first thing I want to make sure that we have time for is I'd like to hear what your plan is for CVS Nutrition. What does that program look like? How are you planning to change the world? I really want to be there for people when they need it. This whole concept of people believing nutrition can work, but then saying it hasn't worked for me right. over and over and over again, it bothers me because we know it can work, but it's really hard to make it work. So with CVS Nutrition, what we want to do is personalize. We have an incredible footprint. And by footprint, I mean, we have a physical footprint. Yes. yes. So there's a CVS within three miles of most folks in the United States. Yeah. But yeah. there's also a great digital footprint. And we have the opportunity to be both. Okay. Yeah, so, and that's, yeah. there's a lot of value in that. Best of both worlds. So. I think so. Yeah. And then if we can use the data to help people as much as possible, that's the winning combination. And to me, it's what's missing. That's how I want to CVS Nutrition to change the landscape. I guess my question is, can you get down to nuts and bolts? I'm an individual and, and I happen to be at a place where you're piloting this. I, I want to be clear, this is not rolled out across the country yet. This is an idea that is being tested, and uh, there's no doubt that the science behind it is solid. The question is, is can we engage and influence a significant amount uh, of the population to improve health? And, and so can you take us down to the nuts and bolts? What would it look like if I, as an individual, let's say, came to you and said, uh, hey, Dr. Woods, I'm interested in improving my nutrition. What happens? So first off, we are developing a proprietary personalization algorithm. And this is a combination of different types of inputs that will help direct us to say, hey, 
Robert, this is exactly where you should probably start. What type of nutrition pattern? We take a diet agnostic approach to nutrition okay. because we believe in, and, and so you and I could go back and forth on stories of people who have followed different patterns and are incredibly healthy. Yeah. Number one is understanding that pattern. And then two is really understanding what are your biggest barriers? So I might say to you, I eat perfect until Thursday night and I'm a disaster until <laughs> Sunday night and I start over again every Monday. Yeah, yeah. Whereas somebody else might come in and say, no, weekends are no problem for me. It's a lot of business travel. And when gotcha. I get in an airport, yeah. it falls apart. So now you see you've got this pattern, you've got the behavioral needs, and then we need this continuous way to help people put that into practice. Yeah, so there yeah. are digital components to that where you can nudge people. There's components where you can talk to somebody and get a little bit of help. So that that's really a little bit more detail on how okay. this works. Okay, that 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 sounds very interesting. So you're and I'm assuming you're going to leverage those physical locations to to you know, measure body fat, measure weight, blood pressure, lab work that may or may not be necessary. One of the th points that I want to make real quickly about that, I'll digress for a second here, is science is not about having the best strategy. It's about getting closer and closer to a best strategy by answering more and more questions over time. Science is always a question. It's a hypothesis, if you will. And, and that bothers people. They want definitive answers. But the answer to science is a question. And so that's how we move slowly down the road towards better. So what you're interested in first, if I hear you correctly, is moving towards better. Absolutely. Okay. And that's right in and of itself. That's a huge impact right there. Yes. And indeed. you can imagine the bigger impact that we have as we continue to learn and make things better. So uh, in your personal experience now, what do you think it's going to take to get us to a significant turnaround in the dietary habits of most Americans? What, what is necessary to make that happen? In a perfect world, let's pretend for a moment I could wave a magic wand. Okay. If I could provide somebody with all the food and beverages they need for a week and, and get them to say, look, I'm going to commit this week and I'm going to do this. So many people will see how much better they can feel. But just that step is very, very difficult. Yes. Maybe it was Mike Tyson who said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yes, that was Mike Tyson. Uh, one, one of my favorite quotes, and yeah, it yeah. so applies to nutrition. Yeah. People will walk out and say, I got this. And the next meal they eat is picture perfect, next two, three. And then all of a sudden, daycare closed <laughs> that day. I got two kids at home. I have a new deadline at work and everything falls apart. Yeah. Those moments, this is my second point, are where we would need people to say, I got this. Yeah. And so number one is really feeling it. And number two, getting people to believe I can get through those moments. You know, there, as I think through this, you know, there we think in businesses about barriers to entry, right? There's a barrier that you got to get over in order to even play in the game. The same thing is, is true about good nutrition, because there's a reason that we eat sugar, salt, and fat. The fat we don't respect because we get enough sugar and salt in the current uh, standard American diet that we don't think about it. And we've been taught it's bad, 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 so we tend to avoid it. But there's a reason that we there they're addictive, right? And in particular, uh, carbohydrates and sugars. And I've, I've noticed, by the way, full disclosure, I am pre-diabetic. I've got an elevated uh, hemoglobin A1C, uh, have had for, you know, off and on for four years now, and have, have taken a variety of approaches to, to manage that. Probably wouldn't know what to look at me. You wouldn't identify me as that guy's got, you know, pre-diabetes, but it, it is a fact. And so I'm intensely interested in, in all of these data. 
but the bottom line is there's a barrier. And what I've learned in my own experience is when I tried to go from a lax diet, and you're absolutely right, an event happens, and it's like, you know, I got to take care of this, this, and this. I'm going to have a sandwich from McDonald's. Everything else is closed because you haven't paid any attention to what you're eating until it's too late. And then bad decisions happen. But when I'm moving from that diet into something that makes a lot more sense and is more healthy and has a lot more fat and very few carbs, the first day or two, I don't feel so great. I mean, you know, it's hard and it's like, wow, this, you know, this is making me feel worse, not better. And until I get a week or two in, I can't see the advantage. And then I get a week or two in and I start to see the advantage and I go, wow, okay. Now I get this. I don't have that craving for carbohydrates that I used to have. And I don't have that feeling of the crash after, you know, I've had a bunch of carbohydrates. So there's a barrier to entry there that you got to get people past, at least in my, that's my personal experience. Is that your experience with most people? Yes. And it depends on the dietary pattern, especially with low carbohydrate. You need to have a little bit of time. If your body is used to a mixed fuel and then you move to a predominantly fat fuel, think about it as a processing plant. You need the machinery to be able to turn that into the energy you're using on a daily basis. And that processing, enzymes, et cetera, it just takes some time to develop. So you got to call the guys that run the fat factory to come back into work. (laughs) We're we're putting the third shift on. (laughs) Get her going, boys. Yeah, Um, 100%. Like, it does take some time to adapt in many cases. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot going on with that adaptation. So I think that if you can experience it for a few weeks and you just feel people don't talk a lot about this but it's one of the most miraculous things to me when they cut carbohydrates they say i'm just not that hungry yeah they say yeah. oh it's time for lunch but I, yeah i don't know i mean yeah, yeah. i should eat shouldn't i eat like yeah. i should eat it's lunchtime, <laughs> but i'm not that hungry that's pretty miraculous and then when you go in and measure the amount of energy they're taking in it's gone down so it really seems counterintuitive, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. saying, wow, I'm eating less, but I'm less hungry. How, what the heck? The carbohydrates piece of it, it, it's part of a bigger piece. And, and this is why food is so difficult. You have to eat to live. There are a couple reasons I say that. Number one is since everybody eats, everyone's got a strong opinion on this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And it's amazing. I'll kind of joke about this. If I go to a, to a cookout, it's, it's kind of like... People are either like, oh, I'm going to watch what you put on your plate. I'm going to get right. <laughs> or they'll say to me, oh, let's see what the nutritionist kid gets to eat. Oh Do you goodness. let your yes, kids yes, have yes. a soda? Right. These are the kind of things that, that will happen. And then that will quickly morph into a couple of questions. And that will morph into, well, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> like this is this. And I, I kind of sit back as this curious social being and watch that. So coming back to your original point, mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. are trying to cross so many incredible barriers with better nutrition. This, I think, will end up being a stupid question. But how do you deal with people that find themselves in food deserts? What, what do you do with that? Oh, my goodness. Not a stupid question. That, that is such an important question. It gets more difficult. There's no question. I think with grocery delivery where it's at, I think with food delivery from restaurants where it's at, those pieces help a little bit. But what they don't do is deal with what do I get at the bodega? What do I get in the convenience store? And how do I navigate that? We have to help there. Uh, And I think, I mean, honestly, not to bring this back to CVS, but we're very well positioned to help there. And it's absolutely on our radar. Yeah, and and Aetna has a lot of plans that are Medicaid, 
you know, which are the, the, the least well-served of our population. You, you have to be at a certain level of disadvantage in order to qualify for the program. Unfortunately, there's a stigma attached to it. There shouldn't be. I mean, this is, this is uh, if you believe that everybody deserves decent health care, then there should be no stigma at all. Even for plans like that, do you see in the future these sorts of strategies being available to that population? I mean, you know, somebody could listen to this podcast and say, oh, yeah, you're sitting up there and you're talking about catering to people who can afford to pay for a diet program or et cetera. Is there, is there a way to get this further out into the community? Has to be a way to do that. And this is going to be a different, it's a different problem to solve than some of the ones that we've been talking about yeah, earlier. Yeah, it, it really is. is. It is. Because you bring in this whole other layer of difficulty mm-hmm. and we, but it's always going to come back to meeting people where they're at. Yeah. It's understanding that experience. So for me to sit here and say, here's how to do that, it's back to me is backwards. It's going and getting in the community and learning where can we really make this difference? Yeah. What levers do we have? What levers are we missing? How do we bridge those gaps? Okay, okay. You know, you, you, you come to the healthcare industry from a different perspective. And so I'm wondering how you think about it. What 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 is... And this is taking us, you know, much broader up to the 50, maybe 100,000 foot level. What's wrong with U.S. healthcare? Why is it so costly? And uh, and yet we have challenges in matching quality outcomes of the rest of the world. Have, do you give that any thought at all? Are you, are you mostly focused on how do we get nutrition right? So I give it thought uh, and I don't have the you know, uh, scientific literature background in the area as much as I do in some other areas. So I'll kind of give you some opinions and what I'm seeing. First of all, the episodic nature of the way we take care of chronic conditions is it's just destined to fail. Of course, it's expensive. Of course, it's not that effective. If I want to go see a provider, you make an appointment, you wait, you sit, you sit in there, you feel extremely rushed. You may have 15 questions and three get answered poorly. And, and, and this is not anything against my medical peers, yourself yeah, yeah, no, included. No, it's not, that's not the yeah. point. I think that the system is set up to fail because of the way it's designed. I would rather see people be able to get the care they need when they need it using technology. And that's why I think there's actually a lot of hope. Gotcha. Taking care of chronic conditions is going to change a lot in the next 10 years. Like I, I would say looking back on this episode 10 years from now, we will be blown away at how different the landscape is. Yeah. If I go to your office and, and, I, and I'm asking you questions, Dr. Groves, can I, can I eat avocados? Is that good for my, is that a healthy food? Right, right. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not, that's not what we need you working on, right? That, so we need to reshuffle so that people can work at the top of their ability levels consistently. No, that all makes a lot of sense. And, and the only other thing that I'll throw in, because I do, gosh, I can't help it on, on every show, is the nature of the system is distorted by incentives that no longer serve us. And as long as those incentives exist, it's going to be incredibly difficult to change the current system. Now, the one exception to that that I will raise is grassroots disruption. You know, what happened to uh, Blockbuster via Netflix? What, you know, Kodak, Polaroid with, with digital film? How, and, and so there is a move afoot to totally disrupt 
disrupt healthcare. And if you're not thinking about that, you hadn't been paying attention to Amazon and Walmart and CVS and Walgreens. I mean, there are a whole bunch of folks out there that are asking themselves this question, what can we do to make this better? Because it doesn't make sense. The rest of the world has some of this figured out. They are able to provide universal coverage at a fraction of GDP with equivalent outcomes. Now, Brent James would say we're optimized for a different function. We have a rescue system, and that's quite literally true. I mean, we, we do 911 better than anybody in the world. Hit by a truck, you want to be here because we're more likely to save you. But what we don't do well is the day-to-day management of general health. And the cost is that we have less and less money that is available for wages, that's available to address those uh, larger issues, uh, social programs that have demonstrated ROI. So that's the conundrum. And and in order to get past it, I, I still think that we'll need some policy changes Uh, to move us from fee-for-service to value-based strategies, frankly, all the way to capitation with very rigorous quality metrics as a balancing feature. You know, I feel like I'm preaching here now. I could be wrong. You know, I've been wrong before, but it seems to me like that's the best uh, strategy for us to take. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do have thoughts on that. So getting results matters. Being able to measure those results is going to become important somehow. So part of my hope is that as technology advances, we can measure results easier. So for example, let's say I'm an employer and I give everybody a membership to the gym and you're looking at the prevention side. How do I connect that to somebody not needing dialysis in five years? And do I even care? Yeah. Because if the average employee tenure is two years, that's somebody else's problem. Yeah, you've just described the health insurance problem too, right? Yeah. So absolutely. And I think the hope for me in this digital technology is we can measure better. And I hope that the electronic record system, and I'm not an expert there, but just how they can communicate and how we can pull data will help us to see what leading indicators matter. Right. Do we have information to prove ROI? And do, do we focus on the right people? Yeah, and, and, and I'm thinking, when you say ROI, I'm thinking of uh, not only the financial rewards, but, but the rewards in uh, health, in mental health, you know, I mean, the whole nine. Return uh, can mean a lot of things on the investment of time, money, resources, and knowledge. Yeah, and that's uh, probably the crux of a lot of the world's problems. So yeah, it, I, it is. It it's, is. it's a big problem to solve, and I, it, it is something that worries me a lot. Something I liked that you talked about was this disruption. Yeah, And yeah. I see that a lot, and that's another lesson for me from Silicon Valley type of experiences. Yeah, yeah. How quickly things can be disrupted. Yes, they can, yeah. The pandemic, for example, has changed the face of medicine almost overnight. Yeah. uh, In lots of good ways, frankly. It has, and and I've heard others say it was an accelerant. So, you know, did did the pandemic show us that telemedicine is valuable? Well, no. But, but it certainly accelerated the use. And all of a sudden, we're seeing all these new ways. Yeah. So yeah. in that way, yeah, I think that's, that's hope. And it, it also shows how quickly things can change yes. if your feet are at the fire. Yeah, yeah. Between March 9th and March 16th of 2020, my whole world changed. And, and it was overnight, you know, over week, actually. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I had to make a decision about uh, whether we were going to meet in person or not. And at that time, you know, not everybody was on board. And, and so you're right, things can change 
in an instant. And, uh, and there you are. I love uh, the territory that we've covered. And I have to tell you that based on the people I get to talk to uh, on this show, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. Now, I know that there are so many uh, barriers and there are so many things that can uh, lead us down the wrong path. But I'm kind of with, uh, I think it was Winston Churchill on this, that you can count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> I love it. You know, I think about today's medical students. They're very different from when I was in training. I think about today's leaders, very different from uh, when I first started down my leadership journey. So I'm very optimistic about the future. Um, I, I want to go back and touch a little bit on, you know, we talked about the fundamental four. It's nutrition. Talked a little bit about exercise. Could probably do a lot more there if we wanted to. And we've talked a little bit about sleep. Could probably do a lot more there if we wanted to. But I want to talk about stress management for a minute because that's so important particularly when it comes to prediabetes and diabetes, because stress itself causes an increase in the very mediators that drive increased blood sugar and can lead to further dysfunction in prediabetes, metabolic syndrome, etc. So talk to me about stress management for a minute. How do you think about that? Do you meditate? Do you have a meditation practice? How, how do you think about that? Sure. It's incredibly important. It means a different thing to everybody. So to me, you've got to go on this introspective journey of what stress is to you and how mm -hmm. do you experience it. That's probably one of the most important things because if stress to one person is road rage, stress to another person is taking care of an elderly family member. And, yeah. and so they, they all can have similar physiologic responses, but understanding where it is that you experience that in your life is really important. Okay. Meditation. So I am a Headspace user. Uh, and I absolutely love cool. it. I have yeah. a lot of work to do there. A lot <laughs> of work to do. And it has been absolutely game-changing for me. Yeah. How long have you been doing it for just curious? Oh, a couple of years now. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, a couple yeah, of years. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it brings me back. We, we watched, this is back when I was a college professor. Um, we had this presentation on mindfulness, yeah. And it was one of the first times I had heard this term and right. really thought about it. And I went up to the presenter after and I said, so what you're telling me is everything that got me through grad school and my postdoc, I need to forget. And, and, <laughs> and she laughed. She was a great sport and an incredible presenter. And she said, yeah, we're, we're actually more productive when we are focused on one thing. And we are doing that one thing to the best of our ability. And I struggle with it every single day as a parent, as a youth sports coach, you know, as a husband, as yeah. a professional, how do you do that? How do you really, really do that? And meditation to me is, is a, has been very, very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the way I think about it is that it is one of the most valuable things that I can do is understand how my mind works. To me, meditation, you know, it, it has some characterization as being uh, religious, and it certainly can be in the right context. Uh, it has some connotations of being sort of woo-woo, new age, and it certainly can be. You know, there are iterations of it that uh, go beyond what we know about it. I'm certainly not against those things. I, uh, all I'm saying is that there are a lot of variations on this theme that we don't think about. So when I think about uh, meditation, what I really think about is it is experimenting on myself to understand how my mind works and what things I might be able to do to manage it better. And, and one of the notions that I come to over and over again is, you know, we have sleep, we have rest and, and recovery and sleep, 
But we also need time, I think, during the day, whether it's at the start of the day, which works for some people, midday is uh, and or both. And at the end of the day, you know, find a time that makes sense to take your mind offline. I mean, that's really what it boils down to and exercise your attention muscle. For some, this is way too many words. The old Zen saying is, you know, if you talk too much about it, your eyebrows will grow. Well, maybe that's why I have this problem. But anyway, I didn't get it until I did it. And again, there's a barrier to entry to this as well. For some people, it may be a walk. If you're really paying attention to your body and your surroundings, instead of going over and over in your head, what you should have done, what you could have done, what you might do, what's in the future, what's in the past, you know, I'm bad, I'm good. You know, all of that running commentary that we go through every day, that self-referential commentary, learning how to take that offline and just notice can be huge in down-regulating that level of stress. And kind of like with nutrition, all right, there's not a one-size-fits-all. It's find out if it's swimming laps and counting or walking and noticing nature or sitting down and meditating with headspace. Whatever it is, learning how your mind works and learning how to facilitate optimal function of that mind, the one that you got, is what I think about when I think about stress management and meditation and other strategies to help uh, smooth things over. It, it comes back to knowing yourself, and you'll hear us at CVS Nutrition, we talk a lot, a lot about know yourself. Knowing the things and knowing how your mind works. Nutrition example for me. If somebody walked through that door with a fresh plate of brownies and put it right <laughs> under my face... Uh, I'm to be done, hurt. man. I'm now, done. Now, I will tell you, and this is not, I'm not showing, that wouldn't bother, I would not have one. It wouldn't bother me. Oh, my goodness. Now, I'm however, not there yet. However, big however, it took me a long time to, to be away from that. Ugh. However, if I decide to eat one, I am in trouble, and I'm probably going to arm wrestle you for every last one of those brownies. I'm going to eat them all. <laughs> it's it's going to happen. So yeah, yeah. I now know myself. I know that when those come in here, I'm better off not having one than I am saying, well, I'll just have a bite. You've learned the consequences. I, right. And so, the, you know, if we bring that back to the stress management, I can give you another example. So I coach youth hockey, and I love doing it. But I will often be on calls until I get to the rank at, you know, seven o'clock at night. Right. And I have to go right in there and teach a bunch of 11 year olds how to do something. Yeah. Very different skill set. Yes. Yes. And I know that that very quick transition to me is a red flag to me. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, what, what I'm saying, I agree with you that you've got to learn about yourself mm -hmm. to then be a better self. Gotcha. And I think we okay. miss that first part a lot. I do. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a great point. Um, I, I, I also will, will say that circumstances are certainly not irrelevant here, right? I mean, uh, uh, Dan Pink has, has made some uh, assertions about what actually motivates us in real life. And certainly money is one motivator, right? There's no doubt about it. Incentives work. That's why we have them. But he, he breaks it down to autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And, and so let's think about those for a second. The more in control one feels of one's life, the less likely one is to be stressed, right? And I think that's true. And not everybody is starting from the same place uh, in that regard. And there are some people who may feel that that's not possible for them. I would argue that in some way, it is possible. If you think about uh, Man's Search for Meaning, you know, or, or some of the great works that have people in just horrible circumstances. I'm not pronouncing his name because I can't remember how to pronounce it, but it's uh, Eli Weissel, or I, I don't know. 
I'm, I'm going to screw that up. I apologize in advance to everyone and their brother and sister and mother and father and kids. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, if people can find control over their own mind, then almost any circumstance can be bearable. Do I speak from personal experience? Not to the level that you know many people in the world suffer, but yes, I have had those times when everything seemed like it was falling in and, and uh, there was no hope. Uh, you know, So uh, we've all been there one time or another in some way or another. Having control over just our response to that is the first step towards what I think of as autonomy. Mastery, I think of as competence. We don't all have to think we're the best because the truth is there's probably always somebody smarter, richer, faster, better, better looking, better, more spiritual, more mindful. <laughs> you know, there's always somebody. And, and so it's about competence. It's about feeling that whatever it is that we do, that we do it really well. And, and that feeling, everybody knows that feeling. And that's important for stress management. And then when we get to purpose, really, I think of that more as connection. Loneliness is a huge problem in our society. The pandemic has not made that any better. But having people you can rely on, to sh a, a shared experience, really connect with on a human level. Those three things go a long way towards managing stress. And, and even getting two out of three is a huge step forward in managing stress. And, you know, I, I layer meditation or other practices uh, of, of mindfulness, paying attention, awareness, being able to, to do those things on top of that. Thoughts? That's a lot to think about. <laughs> it's so valuable just as a thinking exercise to me. The autonomy piece is something I wonder a lot about because if I have this innate desire to have autonomy, at some level, you don't have it at all. True enough. And so you have to be able to get past that. Interesting. Okay, I like that. To be able to believe in the autonomy thing again. No, that's very interesting. And I'll, ha I'll have to give that some more thought, honestly, because that's a, a perspective. But, you know, uh, one notion, and, and I've, I've said this before, but for those of you who haven't heard it, my, uh, my dad asked me when I got into medical school, uh, what's the number one cause of death? And I said, heart disease. He said, no. And I was puzzled. I said, Lung disease? He said, no, it's being born. And so, you know, at some point, we don't choose the time of our death, right? And so at some point, you're absolutely right. You have to be able to give up that concept. Yeah, that's, it's fun. And, and the math, I love the mastery concept too. The competition that we experience, and I, and I, like I said, I've been a youth sports coach for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And what I say to the parents is, this is about learning life skills and developing a lifelong appreciation for physical activity. Yeah, that's yeah. what youth sports are for. If something else happens, Tremendous. Yes. That's, that's a great bonus. The mastery kind of comes into that because we do breed this incredible competitiveness. Right. And, right. And, and you've got to say, like, at what point is that a problem? Yeah. You yeah. need the competitiveness at times, but then it comes back to what you said earlier, and it's making me think. If I think I need to be the best at shopping for groceries or whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever it, yeah. it doesn't matter. All of a sudden, I'm always going to come up short. Yes. And yes. there's, so if you can couch that as there's a couple things I'm really, really good at, and mm -hmm. I have a mastery level along with many other people at that thing, and I'm good with that, I think that's an, it enables you to have, be a little, you know, content with that and go into another situation and say, I don't know anything about this. You know what, Rich, my measure of a, a great 
uh, guest on the Groves Connection is somebody who teaches me something. I love the way you push back against these concepts because it creates a new opportunity for me to think of it in a different way. So you've shot down, I, I, I'm kidding, of course, you've shot down autonomy, you've shot down mastery. What are you going to say about purpose, meaning connection? That one's a little different. I mean, you've got to, I mean, that's huge. And I think what gets hard is for people to know that they can have that. Yeah. yeah. Can, can I have purpose? Can I really affect something that means something to me? Yeah. I think the pace of life right now, it's so fast that you really end up missing important things and yeah, thinking yeah. back to purpose. Yeah. And that's where people need that social connection. Yeah. Social connection is critically important. I mean, loneliness is associated with a much higher mortality rate than most things that we take risks with every day. So it's bad for us. Loneliness tends to be bad for us. And that's, you know, you can be lonely uh, in a crowd. Uh, it's more about connection than it is about proximity of friends or family. Uh, so I think that's a, a, a critical thing to think about. And, you know, the only thing that I would push back on that is not against you, against myself in some ways, is I often think about the American notion of self-determination, of competition, of I can do this. And to some extent, as you point out, that can be extremely healthy because it it pushes us to new heights, heights that we didn't imagine even were possible. But on the other hand, the downside of that is failing to do the connection piece and failing to understand that no one is an island, that we're all interconnected, that we can't ignore the virus that's happening in Brazil because it's going to impact us, that we're all connected somehow. And so the notion is, again, it's a balance, right? You have to balance these opposites and come to a place in nearer to the center, if you will, that makes sense for you as an individual and that makes sense for us as a society. The amount of times you, you want to do so much good and you realize that sometimes it doesn't always work out. Yeah, yeah. So, l- l- let me ask you about that. I mean, how, how do you not let that type of thing distract you? How do you kind of put that aside and continue to say, I'm going to do good things. I'm going to have a purpose and I'm going to make the world better. You know, some of it for me today is experience. Uh, Because at so many points in my life, I've been at the point where I think it's not possible for me to do what I wanted to do. Uh, This is terrible. What has happened to me? My circumstances won't allow me to move forward. And I won't get into details on that because uh, we don't have time to go into detail on that. I'm happy to at some other time. Mm -hmm. But at each of those moments, I thought this is the fatal failure. This is the one I won't recover from. I won't have accomplished anything and I am nothing. I mean, and each time the results of that horrible thing has led to new opportunities and things I hadn't even thought of before forced me into a position where I had to do something very different than what I had done before, forced me into a position where I had to rely on somebody else uh, to pull me up and developed a great long-term relationship as a result of that. So some of it is just the experience that, no, it doesn't have to be that kind of setback. What are the opportunities here? Well, where can I go with this? It's, it's kind of like, can't change the fact that we had a pandemic. And so the question that I want to ask is, what are the opportunities here? How can we leverage what has happened in 
regulatory relaxation uh, around telemedicine, digital health, et cetera. How can we leverage that to make a better future? And, and just the experience of that over and over and over again has led me to believe that it's possible, I guess. And, and you first have to believe that it's possible. I find that super helpful. And it comes back to this concept of rapid iteration. Yes. When things fail, instead of saying, this isn't going to be, I'm not making progress to my purpose or to my you know, yeah, impact yeah. level, maybe you're right on the doorstep of something big. And, and that optimism, I think, is huge. Rich, I think that is a great place. I've, I've used so much of your time already. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I, there's no doubt we have to do this again. Uh, but I'm going to end it there on that upbeat note. Uh, and uh, just thank you so much for uh, coming on the Groves Connection. You've been a great guest. And I'm, I'm looking forward to many more discussions in the future. Uh, this has been an absolute thrill. Thank you so much, Robert. I've had a blast. All right. And with that... We're going to say goodbye. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. Professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Groves Connection.